Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights, Doctrine and Covenants sections six through nine. Now, to set the stage for section six, seven, eight, and nine, we need to take a step back away from the, the scripture page and look at the setting, uh, what's going on, the timeline. So very, very quick review here. Uh, September 22nd of 1827 was the date that Joseph received the plates for the first time out of the hill where he could he could secure them. So what happens is, is we get to spring of 1828 when we have completed this portion of the translation that would involve what story we talked about last time, the 116 pages, and Martin, at the end of the spring, 1828, takes those pages home to Palmyra, we lose them. So summer of 1828 is miserable for Joseph and Emma. They've lost their, their firstborn son named Alvin. We've lost the manuscript. He's lost the plates, the Urim and Thummim. He feels at one point like he has lost his soul, and it's, it's pretty miserable. That's when the Angel Moroni came to him in that um, in the woods near near their home in Harmony, showed him the Yerman Thummim with the beginnings of section three on the the stones that he then recorded down. The, like we talked last week, the first section recorded. In the winter of 1828-1829, uh, Joseph's parents, Joseph Sr. and Lucy, they came down to visit Joseph, and in February of 1829, that's where Joseph received section four that we talked about last time. Now watch, Martin Harris arrives in March of 1829, that's where we got section five. So section three was back here. We're, we're lining this out as we set the stage for section six, where we jump in today. So, before, before these events occurred in the early part of 1829, here on September 22nd, again, of 1828, the angel Moroni had promised Joseph that if he humbled himself and repented, then the plates and the, the Urim and Thummim would be returned to him, which they were. So here he has the plates back, but he doesn't have a scribe, and he's he's struggling to just keep his financial head above water, so to speak, to, to survive in this world. Well, God provided a means for the translation process to, to continue and move forward, and here's how he did it. Uh, in the fall of 1828, a man by the name of Oliver Cowdery came to Palmyra, New York, to be the teacher for the, the city school there. 
and as was customary in that time, the teacher would then board at the homes of the various families that sent their children to the school, and they were also paying the salary for this, for this teacher. Oliver heard stories in Palmyra about a golden Bible, about a translation and angels, and while most of the people in Palmyra were mocking and, and making fun of these stories, it caught Oliver's attention because he, like Joseph, had become pretty discouraged with the, the religious landscape of the day, and so he requested, after hearing enough of these stories, he requested to get to go and stay with the Smith family, which he did, and he asked questions, and they could tell that he was more sincere, and so they opened up a little bit more with him than they had with others because they had become quite quiet on a lot of fronts with a lot of people because every time they said anything, they would bring on persecution. Oliver loved what he was hearing for the most part, and he wanted to, to somehow be a part of it. And as soon as that 1828 to 1829 school year ended, which would have been uh, much earlier in the, the spring than what we're used to in our, in our modern culture, sometime in, in early April or late March, somewhere in there, depending on the year, he decided, I'm going to go to Harmony. So he and Samuel, Joseph's brother, Samuel Smith, walked the nearly 100-mile trek from Palmyra down to Harmony on muddy streets. It was a very uh, wet journey for them on foot, and very cold, by the way. Incidentally, when he arrived, he, he had a frostbitten toe, and uh, he was excited to finally meet Joseph, the prophet, who he had heard so much about, and now he met him. And uh, it's, it's one of those amazing friendships that, that was forged almost immediately. Just for context, Joseph is quite tall. He's, he's over six feet tall. Oliver Cowdery's about five foot four. Oliver's one year younger than him. And, and Oliver is extremely um, gifted with writing, and he's much more learned as far as the world is concerned than Joseph. So they began this, this process of now translating the rest of the Book of Mormon. Keep in mind, we lost the 116 pages. Uh, Jack Welch has done a lot of work and a lot of study on this process, the translation process, and how, how long it took and what days they're likely to be translating. And it's fascinating when uh, you, you look at this situation, picture Oliver Cowdery coming, and the first item of business that he helps Joseph with is to, to write a contract for his father-in-law, Isaac Hale, Emma's parents, to say, I will repay you for this land and this home and the, the spring and the barn that's on Isaac Hale's property that Joseph and Emma are now living in. So that was the first thing Oliver helped him do, and then they began the translation process. Can you imagine being Oliver Cowdery, having heard about this, when the first things that you hear fall from the lips of the prophet as you're scribing for him are probably the first few chapters 
that we have in our book of Mosiah. Picture your, your introduction to the translation of the Book of Mormon being King Benjamin's speech and the, the uh, precursors to King Benjamin's speech. Now, picture being Oliver Cowdery in his situation where he, he's a school teacher, he doesn't have a lot of money, and he is a little concerned about his physical well-being, and now he's living in the home with a poor farmer who's in debt with a wife, and they're struggling with money, and picture some of these words in their historical context, what it might have meant for those two men performing this work, and Emma, who's listening in much of the time in the room on what's going on. Listen to these words from Mosiah 2. Start in verse 23. Now in the first place he hath created you, and granted unto you your lives, for which ye are indebted to him. And secondly, he doth require that ye should do as he hath commanded you, for which if ye do, he doth immediately bless you, and therefore he hath paid you, and ye are still indebted unto him, and are and will be forever and ever, therefore of what have ye to boast? Beautiful words that apply to their situation, but then, at a much deeper level, can you imagine what it might have felt like for Oliver Cowdery to be dipping that quill in ink and listening to these words as he then puts them to paper in our dispensation, words like these, For behold, the time cometh and is not far distant that with power the Lord omnipotent who reigneth who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay, and then go on and on with this description of Jesus. Can you imagine how sweet it must have been to Oliver to hear these words and to record them as he realizes um, very early on what he is now a part of, this unfolding of the restoration of the gospel and through this translation process. Of the, uh, of the Book of Mormon. Notice that uh, the section heading to section 6 tells you that this was given to um, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in April of 1829, so it's very shortly after he's arrived when this revelation comes to Oliver, and it opens – you'll notice, by the way, that it's it opens using a similar phrase that we heard back in section 4, and it's going to be used over and over again in subsequent sections. A great and marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. And notice the context, verse 2, behold, I am God. I love those three words, I am God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking directly to Joseph and Oliver, making very clear, I'm God, and I have a work that I'm going to bring forth, and you two are going to be instruments that I'm going to use in bringing this forth, but let's keep it clear, I'm God. It's, it's in my mind, it's the nicest way he has of saying, I know what I'm doing. You've got to trust me completely here. I know how to do this work, even if you're struggling, wondering about how you're going to pay bills or how you're going to provide for your physical needs, trust me as you do this great and marvelous work. 
Um, notice he then goes on to verse 4, whosoever will thrust in his sickle and reap, the same is called of God. Now, look at the, look at the qualifier in verse 5, therefore, if ye will ask of me, ye shall receive, and if ye will knock, it shall be opened unto you. Verse 6 informs us, you already have asked, so let me give you a, an answer. I'm going to help you receive something right here. Look at verse 6. Now, as you have asked, behold, I say unto you, keep my commandments and seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. Did you notice that? They've asked a question and his answer is, yeah, seek to bring forth my kingdom and establish the cause of Zion. That's the answer. And brothers and sisters, that's the answer for all of us if we were to really ask. Um, it's the same thing. Look at verse 7. Seek not for riches, but for wisdom. These two men and their family, and, and Emma as well, wondering about how to even pay bills, and here's God yet again reminding them, don't worry about the riches, but for wisdom. Brothers and sisters, what do you think Brother Joseph and Brother Oliver would say if they could speak directly with you today? Would they say, oh, let me tell you how frustrating it was to be so poor so long and always struggling with, with lack of funds? Do you think they would mention anything about money today as they look back on their life? Or do you think they would say, oh, trust, trust that the Lord will provide for the needs as you do the best. It doesn't mean that we ignore it. It doesn't mean that we, we don't try to provide for our needs. It just means that if you seek for wisdom, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded of you unto you, and then shall ye be made rich. Behold, he that hath eternal life is rich. It's, it's a world that we live in that is very, very enticing to pull our attention towards the things that money and power can give us, and here the Lord's reminding us that's all very fleeting. Look at verse 8, verily, verily, I say unto you, even as you desire of me, so it shall be unto you, and if you desire, you shall be the means of doing much good in this generation, and that is not fleeting. That doesn't go away when we die. That doesn't just fade into oblivion. That's work that, that stays done, and we are the beneficiaries of, of exactly that kind of work that these two accomplished. Look at verse 10. Behold, thou hast a gift. Blessed art thou because of thy gift. Remember, it is sacred and cometh from above. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a section here, verse 10, 11, 12, where he talks about the gift and don't make it known unto any and don't trifle with sacred things. And uh, there, There's a lot there that seems difficult to understand and it's going to come up again in, in section 8 and even a little in section 9. Uh, this idea that Oliver Cowdery has a rod similar that's compared to the rod of Aaron or the rod of Moses through which great miracles are performed and revelation is given. And we'll talk a little bit about that in section 8. But there's not a lot written about it and there's not a lot that Oliver's going to say about it. Why? He's told, don't make these things known, don't talk about them a lot, and so he doesn't. Yeah, if we look <clears throat> specifically at verse 12, it says, Make not thy gift known unto any, save it be those who are of thy faith, 
trifle not with sacred things. So let's consider other objects that God has used as means of revelation. We have the Yerman Thun. We have seer stones. We have the Liahona that God prepared. So this is not unusual for God to make use of objects to reveal his will. We have the scriptures today. They are an object and they are a means to reveal God's will. So God will use means to convey his will to us. We have modern day prophets who will speak to us. And on a regular basis, they speak God's will to us. And second of all, we have the opportunity to have God's spirit in our lives. As we promise to keep the commandments at the sacrament, the return promise from God is we'll always have his spirit to be with us, which is a form of having revelation continually with us. So whether it's Aaron's rods or the Liahona or the seer stones, God will work with us if we are willing to listen, to guide us with the revelation that we need for where we're at in our life and times. And by the way, some people have looked at whether it's the rod of Aaron, now we talk about the rod with Oliver Cowdery, or the Urim and Thummim anciently, or the Urim and Thummim, or the seer stones with Joseph. Some would say, in, in our modern culture, they would say, that's ridiculous. How can you believe that, that something like a stone can shine forth in the darkness, that the writing can change from time to time depending on, on the need? Um, if even man can figure out how to do this, I think God can make all kinds of things work. And by the way, in this translation process, there are a lot of questions that come up regarding the mechanics of it, uh, and Oliver is now participating in that process for the first time. It's fascinating that whenever Joseph Smith was asked to describe the translation process, he never went into great detail. He never told people the exact mechanics of how it worked. His answer was always the same. The Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God. In other words, he keeps removing himself from, from taking any kind of credit. He doesn't say, it was translated by the gift and power of my intellect or my incredible ability with Reformed Egyptian or ancient languages. He never takes any of the credit for himself. He always says it was translated by the gift and power of God. Consequently, there are some who wonder about the hat, for instance, that you'll, you'll hear in, in church history stories, or you can read it in the church's gospel topic essays. Um, and a lot of paintings will depict Joseph looking through the Urim and Thummim like glasses, like spectacles, looking down at the, the plates and seeing the, the English words come through that way. Uh, I, love, I love a more balanced approach to this. One of my colleagues at BYU, Tony Sweat, painted a, a beautiful depiction, one, one depiction of the translation process with Joseph looking into to the hat. Uh, and I asked him about that and, and this, this whole question of the translation process, and I loved his answer. He said, if we're not careful, we're going to swing the pendulum too far to one side or the other. We have first-person witness accounts that talk about Joseph looking in the hat as, at the Yerman Thummim or seer stones, and we have other accounts that talk about him just looking at the seer stones and perhaps even at the plates. 
through them. And so I love the fact, like Taylor's saying, that God can use a variety of means to help bring us revelation, and in this case, um, some people have wondered, well, is the hat magical? Is there something fantastical about this hat? I think it's really simple. I don't think there's anything special about the hat other than if I'm looking at a stone that's shining forth in the darkness, and if it's kind of bright, what do I do? I put that in a place that's a little darker that makes it a little easier for my eyes so there's no no eye or less eye strain to be able to read the words clearly that are written on that on that stone so to speak. Uh, so just as you move forward you're going to hear people talking about the different mechanics at the end of the day I think if I were you I would default to Joseph's statement of it was translated by the gift and power of God. Rather than getting focused on how, let's focus on what we got through the translation process. Now, back to Oliver Cowdery, the man. He's wrestling with something. He wants a little further witness that um, this is the Lord's work. Does that tell you something? After everything that we've already talked about up to this point, He's, he's experienced all these things with the translation process in those early chapters of Mosiah, and he's still sitting there, like Martin Harris before him, saying, I, I need a little more proof. Uh, does that tell you a little bit about Revelation, that it, it's a process that unfolds and it grows over time? It's not a big flash of light right at the beginning. Now, it was with the first vision with Joseph, but for most of us it's not that way. It's, it's this unfolding revelatory process. So, notice verse 15 and 16, it's hinted here. He says, Behold, thou knowest that thou hast inquired of me, and I did enlighten thy mind. And now I tell thee these things that thou mayest know that thou hast been enlightened by the Spirit of truth. And then he, he takes it further in verse 16. Yea, I tell thee, that thou mayest know that there is none else save God that knowest thy thoughts and the intents of thy heart." So as Joseph is receiving that revelation for him, he, he is probably thinking, oh, good, God's answering Oliver's question, but then it becomes crystal clear a few verses later. Look at verse 21. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Notice how at the beginning of the section he introduced himself, I am God. Here he clarifies, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I am the same that came unto mine own, and mine own received me not. I am the light which shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. And now this part, verily, verily, I say unto you, if you desire a further witness, cast your mind upon the night that you cried unto me in your heart that you might know concerning the truth of these things. Did, did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God?" Brothers and sisters, Oliver is then going to share his full story with Joseph, that part of the story, that back in Palmyra, when he was living in the Smith home, he had poured his heart out to God, and God had spoken peace to him that this is what he needed to do was to go down to Harmony and help with this work. 
And now Oliver hadn't told anybody about that experience, but now God is explaining exactly that experience. The two who had had it together, the Lord and Oliver, they're coming back together in this instance, at which point Oliver says, okay, this is enough. Joseph has revealed things that nobody but God and I alone were aware of, and that was, that was what he needed to be able to, to help propel him through the rest of this, uh, this coming forth of the Book of Mormon process. Uh, notice verse 32 here towards the end of the section. Verily, verily, I say unto you, as I said unto my disciples, so this is going back to the New Testament, where two or three are gathered together in my name as touching one thing, behold, there will I be in the midst of them, even so I am in the midst of you. I love the fact that here you have Joseph and Oliver who are wrestling with some things, they're struggling with some things, they're doing the best they can with what they've got, but they're, they, they recognize they're lacking, and here Jesus reminds them where two or three are gathered in my name to, to do my work, there am I in the midst of them. And so now that's exactly what you have going on here, Oliver and Joseph with Jesus in the midst of them, strengthening them, and notice how he strengthens them. After all of this incredible section, look how he finishes it, verse 33. Notice you could mark these if you want. Uh, fear not. Notice how often it comes up. Fear not to do good, my sons, for whatsoever ye sow, that shall ye also reap. If you sow good, you also reap good for your reward. You can't plant weeds and grow fruit. If you grow or if you plant good seeds, you're a nurture them, you're going to pick good fruit, and that's what he's reminding them here. And what they're sowing right now are some of the best seeds, the seeds of Scripture, the seeds of the Spirit, the seeds of the restoration are being sown by a poor farmer and his wife and by this, this poor school teacher who they're doing the best they can. I, I love that. I love that God is doing his work through simple people, not through the, the big, famous, brilliant um, scholars of the day, but through these simple people God is bringing forth some of the greatest truths to ever, to ever come to light. Notice verse 34, therefore fear not, little flock, do good. Let earth and hell combine against you, which it will, by the way, for if ye are built upon my rock, they cannot prevail among all of the opposition. Brothers and sisters, God could have made the coming forth of the Book of Mormon so easy, so pleasant, um, fully funded from the beginning, um, totally taken care of with, with no mob uh, action, no family members fighting against you. Emma's father, Isaac, thought the whole thing was a sham and kept telling him and her to, to be done with it. He didn't believe it. Uh, there's another relative of Emma's who comes and flippantly tells Joseph, if you have the gift to translate, and he gives him some, some text in Greek, says, use your, use your Urim and Thummim and tell me what this says, and Joseph doesn't translate it for him, and he walks away saying, see, he's not a prophet without ever giving any thought to the fact that God doesn't give prophetic power 
in order to answer the, the unbelief of naysayers, of people who want you to prove that the work is true, prove that you have a gift to translate, prove that you're a prophet, or prove that God exists, or prove that the book is true. God doesn't seem to use his power to answer those kinds of questions, but he does use his power to answer the heartfelt pleas of people who are asking in sincerity and in loneliness of heart to know the truth so they can know which direction to go. God could have made this entire process very easy, but he didn't. He let them wrestle. He let them struggle. Uh, I wonder I wonder if there's an applicable lesson in that for you and me today. You see, God could take away all of your pain. He could take away all of your doubts. He could take away all of your questions. He could fix every relationship that's struggling in your life. He could cure every disease that you or your loved ones face. He could solve every financial problem that you're facing right now, and he could do it just like that, but he doesn't. He lets us wrestle. He lets us move forward. He lets us recognize over and over and over again that I can't do it alone. I can't do this work that I've been called to do on my own power alone, or my force of intellect alone, or my capacity for having influence alone. I have to rely on him. It's his work, and he's called me to assist in it. He hasn't called me to do it for him. And there's a beautiful principle that if he'll, if he'll even allow these early saints to struggle like that, I don't think you and I should feel like we should be immune from having to wrestle through difficult tests of mortality and, and trials of faith as we move forward on the covenant path as well. Now you'll notice verse 36, look unto me in every thought. He doesn't say look unto the world. He doesn't say go to the experts, go to the, go to the scholars and the learned people. He says look unto me in every thought doubt not, fear not. There's the third time, fear not. I think there's a message for us today. We live in a world that is filled with fear, filled with anxiety, filled with, with questions and doubt and struggle, and here's Jesus reminding these two men and through them by extension reminding you and me, fear not, fear not, fear not. I think uh, hymn number 85 comes in handy here. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. I think uh, we have a pretty firm foundation for our faith and a foundation that allows us to not fear. Now, notice how he finishes that section. Behold the wounds which pierced my side, and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. I wonder why Jesus would have ended the section that way. I wonder if perhaps he's reminding Joseph and Oliver, and once again by extension, you and me, I wonder if he's saying, 
just because you do good things doesn't mean that the world's going to stand up and applaud you and reward you openly for your goodness and your, your, your wonderful efforts to build the kingdom. Remember, it's not what the world has to offer you. It's what God has to offer you. I, I wonder if he's, if he's pointing them to the fact that, get ready, there's going to be some persecution. There's going to be some pain. There's going to be some abuse. You're going you're gonna to hurt, but you're doing my work. And notice he says, be faithful, keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Pretty powerful scripture to receive if you're Oliver Cowdery early on in this process. It's a, it's a flood from heaven. Now, section seven is very unique because what it is, it's brought on by a discussion. I guess we could probably even say a disagreement that Joseph and Oliver had uh, regarding John chapter 21, verse 22. And by the way, if you look back in, chap in section 6, verse 26, the Lord informed them, Verily, verily, I say unto you that there are records which contain much of my gospel which have been kept back because of the wickedness of the people. It's interesting that the very next section is going to reveal just a little teeny fragment, a, a parchment uh, fragment of a writing that had been lost or had been hidden, had been kept back written by John the Beloved, or John the Revelator, the brother of James, he, Peter, James, and John, that, that apostle. Uh, the question that, that became kind of an argument between Joseph and Oliver was, did John actually die, or was he translated and is he still alive today? And the, the the discussion got to the point where they decided to ask God the answer to that question, and in this vision that they had, they see this parchment, and then with the aid of the Urim and Thummim, they're able to translate that parchment. Now, just as a side note, you'll notice, so this is your, your cross-reference here is John chapter 21, verse 22, which is ambiguous at best in the, in the King James Version of the Bible, leaving you open to argue either side, if you want, regarding um, John's translated state or whether he died. Uh, John would have been writing his gospel and all of his writings in Greek. Um, we have no record of Joseph ever at this time uh, in 1829 having studied Greek, and yet he's translating it. Now, once again, we need to make this clear. We use the word translation today to refer usually, traditionally, a translator is somebody who is gifted and fluent in two languages, he or she reads or hears something in one language and then they can translate it into this other language that they know. The thing that makes Joseph's work so remarkable is the fact that he's technically, he's really not fluent, so to speak, or extremely articulate at this stage in any language. Even Emma, his wife, said he could hardly dictate a coherent letter, 
when I first married him. And she gives this way later in life, um, looking back on this translation process. She said he, he struggled to, to even write well or to speak well. So what you get is the gift and power of God making it so that Joseph doesn't know Greek, but he doesn't need to know Greek because God knows Greek perfectly and he knows what John wrote perfectly and is lost. So through this Urim and Thummim means Joseph is able to take it and render it in English for us, and then from there we can translate into the, all the other languages of the world. So what you get here is a lost portion of the writings of John being restored to us, and it's amazing, especially if you look at the word desire or desired, desirest, um, because it comes up multiple times in this section. Uh, I'm, I'm only going to point out a couple of things here. Look at verse 4. For this cause the Lord said unto Peter, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? For he desired of me that he might bring souls unto me, but thou desirest that thou might speedily come unto me in my kingdom. You both got what you desired. Why, why are you struggling with this, Peter? Verse 5, I say unto thee, Peter, this was a good desire, but my beloved has desired that he might do more or a greater work yet among men than what he has done or what he has before done. I love the fact here that Jesus in this particular segment that we no longer have in our Bible explains this concept of please don't spend so much time comparing. Don't look at what you have compared to what somebody else has and say, well, I want what he has. Any comparison should be with God and with the Savior, not horizontally. He says, Peter, look, you got exactly what you desired. John is getting what he desired. It's, it's not a problem. Look at verse 8. Uh, Verily I say unto you, ye shall both have according to your desires, for ye both joy in that which ye have desired. Uh, it's a good question. What does your heart desire? And I hope it's not the things that, that, you're, uh, that the people around you have. I hope it's things that the Lord Jesus Christ has to offer you. We're told multiple times in these sections, if you have righteous desires, ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Section 7 tells us, shows us, gives us evidence that is true. And we don't need to compare and say one person's better than the other or less than, but we can find joy in the fulfillment or the accomplishment of our righteous desires. So let your heart be full and brimming with righteous desires and just pursue those righteous desires and let God work out great good in your life. I also want to just point out with this section something that's quite significant that we might miss. Back here in verse 7, I will make thee to minister for him and for thy brother James. And unto you three I will give this power and the keys of this ministry until I come. So in Joseph Smith's day, the Protestant Revolution had, or the Protestant Reformation, had swept Europe, had taken, had come into America, and we had all these different Christian denominations who were basing their faith on Scripture. And there's a Latin phrase called sola scriptura, which means that our faith is centered in what we can find in the Word of God in Scripture. 
It's a powerful doctrine, a beautiful doctrine, but on its own, it's insufficient. The scriptures cannot save us. And what I love here is that God is laying out, giving some indicators that the priesthood will be revealed and that the priesthood ultimately, the power of God, has to be on earth in order for salvation to be accessible. So yes, we love the scriptures, but the keys of the priesthood is what unlocks the power of salvation in our lives. And we'll see in the upcoming sections and upcoming months in Joseph's life that the priesthood was revealed. The keys of God's power through the priesthood were re-delivered to the earth and have unlocked the restoration. And now the ordinances of God are available to all who will put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they can come unto him and experience salvation. You know, that's a really powerful concept in an age where we're being told that you really don't need a church, you really don't need prophets, We've, we're enlightened now, we don't need these things. Brothers and sisters, you're looking at how much effort God is putting into establishing his church, establishing priesthood keys that unlock doors and that seal things on earth and in heaven. Uh, it's it's vitally important that we recognize more than just knowledge as required for us to be able to move forward on the covenant path. We need God's prophets. We need those ordinances and the keys that they hold to help us progress on this covenant path and to take, it, take opportunities to receive the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ more fully. Now, shift over to section 8. You'll notice he begins here calling him by name again, Oliver Cowdery, Verily, verily, I say unto you that assuredly as the Lord liveth, who is your God and your Redeemer. By the way, that's one of my favorite changes in the, the new version of the Temple Recommend Questions when it says, question number two, do you have a testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ and of his role as your Savior and Redeemer. I love that addition, that it's not just as the Savior and Redeemer, but it's as your Savior and Redeemer. And notice what he says here, who is your God and your Redeemer. And then he tells him, you will receive a knowledge of whatsoever thing you shall ask in faith with an honest heart, believing that you shall receive. And now one of the most powerful verses of the scriptures regarding Revelation. Look at verse 2. Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart. Now we'll pause there. Who is the I? I will tell you. Uh, we're told repeatedly, especially by President Nelson, hear him. We're listening for the words of Jesus Christ. You'll notice Heavenly Father has delegated the kingdom into the hands of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's doing uh, the talking here in, in section 8, as well as most of the Doctrine and Covenants, which, by the way, as we've here we are in this new year. Uh, this has been one of the, the rewarding aspects for me, is as I've studied these sections deeper, is to feel more connected 
to a person, to a being, to a God named Jesus Christ, to, to hear his voice more clearly speaking not just to Joseph and Oliver and Martin and, and Joseph Sr. and others, but speaking to Tyler and to you and, and to my family today and all of us. Notice, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart. Can I just, can I just say that the, if you look at that phrase, what would you think might be one of the most important words in all of what we talked about in verse 2? For me, uh, it's a word that's kind of ins insignificant to most. Uh, it was years ago when I first heard this from, from a good friend and colleague many years ago, Randy Bott, who said to him the most important word there was and. I love that. The point here is revelation will flow to the mind and the heart. You'll notice the word isn't or. He doesn't separate the two. Christ loves combining. It's the devil who loves dividing and, and creating division. So, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost what shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. That's beautiful. Thoughts that are so clear that they can even be written down at times. Elder Scott, Richard G. Scott, spoke about this multiple times in from multiple angles, the process of revelation, and how you you have feelings and impressions and and gentle tugs to go certain directions, and then thoughts will come very specifically at times, and other times it's just a flash across your mind, and the question that many people end up asking over and over again is, was that just me or was that the Holy Ghost? Uh, I love the fact that if, if it's a good thing, if it persuades you to believe in God or to, to come unto him or to serve people or to love God's children, then you can be assured that it's a good thing to do and you can spend less time worrying about was that just me or the Holy Ghost and recognize that the Holy Ghost is going to work with what I have, like Taylor was talking about earlier. He's going to work with my resources to communicate with me using those channels, which means often I will think, wait, that was just me, when in fact it is Jesus Christ speaking to us through the Holy Ghost in those simple ways. Now, some of you may go to church or listen to people in lessons or in talks talking about big revelatory experiences and miraculous things that happen, and some of you might sit there and in your mind think, I don't know how to receive revelation, I guess, or I'm not worthy to receive revelation because I don't get that kind of direct, clear answer, when in fact, brothers and sisters, the promise in scriptures is so sure and it's repeated all over the place ask and ye shall receive, knock and it shall be open unto you. It will probably, for many of you, simply come in basic ways. You won't be, you won't be performing grand miraculous things. You might be doing the dishes when a thought just comes across your mind, I should do this or I should try this with my child or I should 
help my neighbor in that way, and you don't stand up in sacrament meeting and say, let me tell you about a grand miraculous event that happened, you just quietly go and do what the Lord Jesus Christ invited you to do through the gift and power of, of revelation here, through the Holy Ghost coming to your mind and in your heart. Other times, you'll just feel a quiet forgiving of somebody or a letting go of tension or frustration or anger, and you'll think, I, I, should, I should let that one go, I should be kinder to that person, and we don't often see that as this huge miracle when in reality God's doing exactly what he said he would – he promised us he would do. He's going to speak to us in our mind and in our heart using our thoughts and our feelings. Now, I get it. There will be occasions where you get mountain peak type revelation, where the light shines so brightly, the, the voice is speaking clearly for a specific need, but brothers and sisters, those are going to be the exception for most of us, and in some cases, some may never get those kinds of experiences, and it's okay. It's okay. Part of our problem is, once again, we suffer from comparison. We sit there and think, my revelation isn't as good as hers or isn't as good as theirs when God isn't in his heavens comparing us. Uh, I love this verse, mind and heart. Don't just rely on one or the other, rely on both. Oh, and by the way, might I just add, if you're a really logical-oriented person, God's probably going to use that strength to help you, but don't be shocked if on occasion he pushes you out of that comfort zone and puts you in situations that force you to rely on more of the heart aspect of revelation, and vice versa. If you're a more feeling, emotion, um, uh, if you have high emotional intelligence, then don't be surprised if occasionally God pushes you into the unknown realm of having to figure out how to logic and reason through things a little more than maybe you might be comfortable with. God's going to keep stretching us and growing us through this process. Look at verse 3. Now behold, this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. In other words, Moses didn't have everything just open up for him. It was a spirit of revelation that caused this idea to, to come to fruition to save the entire uh, house of Israel in that event. And brothers and sisters, God will give you revelation if you seek it to open up the Red Seas in your family and in your circle of influence. To, to bring salvation to the world through small and simple things that start, start in our mind and our heart but result in great things being brought to pass. Notice verse 10, remember that without faith you can do nothing, therefore ask in faith. It doesn't do you any good to go to God like Laman and Lemuel when Nephi came down off the mountain having had his incredible vision. He sees Laman and Lemuel who are arguing with each other about what their father had taught, and then they turn to him and start asking him, do you know what this means? And do you notice what Nephi's first question was? Have ye inquired of the Lord? 
And the response is, we have not, for the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. There's no faith in that answer. They're saying, we, Nephi, get real. Why would we ask God? God doesn't talk to us about these kinds of things. We would never have asked him about this. Well, then they're never going to get an answer from God because they have no faith that God's going to give them an answer. Brothers and sisters, if you forget everything that I've said or that we've said today, don't forget this. If you will go to God with sincerity of heart, with faith in Christ, with real intent being willing to do whatever it is that he asks you to do, his promise is sure he will give you an answer. He doesn't promise that that answer will come while you're on your knees or while you're in the moment of prayer. From my experience, most of the time it doesn't come that way. Elder Richard G. Scott also said that most answers to prayer don't come while we're on our knees. They come when we're up, acting to the best of our ability, using our mind and our heart to do in faith what we feel like the Lord wants us to do, and then the revelation flows, and sometimes in really simple ways and sometimes in profound ways. Now chapter 9, or section 9, Oliver Cowdery had wanted to translate, and so he was so excited and he started this process and it didn't turn out well. It didn't end well. He wasn't able to complete it, and he has some questions here, and so the Lord answers those questions in section 9. Let's start in verse 3. Be patient, my son, for it is wisdom in me, and it is not expedient that you should translate at this present time. Brothers and sisters, don't be shocked when at times what you want doesn't line up with what God wants for you. Oliver desperately was comparing with Joseph saying, I want to I do what he's doing. I want his job too. And so for a short little segment there, he was able to do it and then it didn't last and he's frustrated. And so what happens? Verse 4, behold, the work which you are called to do is to write for my servant Joseph. Some of our biggest frustrations in life come when we don't get what we want, but if we will swallow our will in the will of, of God, then we'll find true happiness. And the role Oliver was going to be called to, to fill was not as translator but as scribe in this case. Verse 6, do not murmur, my son. Keep in mind, this is Jesus speaking to Oliver and he's referring to him as my son. I love this, this familial feel. It's not my brother, it's my son. Jesus is adopting us to be his children, his sons and his daughters, as is described beautifully in the Book of Mormon in Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7, and Ether chapter 3, verse 14, just to name a few. Uh, and by the way, Jesus knows something about being an adopted son. He knows about taking people to become your own and raising them as your own, and that's what he's doing with Joseph and Oliver and with all of us. So notice verse 6, do not murmur, my son, for it is wisdom in me that I have dealt with you after this manner. And then he tells him, you didn't understand. You got something wrong here, Oliver, and I'm not condemning you for that. I'm going to shape you. You're going to learn from this. It's only a failure if you don't grow and progress and learn from it. Look at verse 8. But behold, I say unto you that ye must study it out in your mind, 
and then you must ask me if it be right, and if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you, therefore ye shall feel that it is right. So you'll notice the feeling implies a little more of the heart, the thinking in your mind, studying it in your mind, verse 8. Brothers and sisters, here's the invitation from God. Use both your mind and your heart in the revelatory process, and if God doesn't give you an exact answer right away, then study it out. Come up with a plan. Use, use your intelligence. Use your experience. Counsel with wise people. Figure out a, a best-case scenario that you can come up with, a, a best solution. Take it to the Lord and ask him if it's right, and move forward to the best of your ability, and he will help us to know through feelings. Verse 9, but if it be not right, ye shall have no such feelings, but ye shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Therefore ye cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given unto you from me. Uh, I think we probably need to mention a caution here that if we're not careful, we'll think that we can never move forward in a decision unless we have a burning like a fire in our heart just causing us to cry or causing us to feel tingly all over, and if we don't get that, then it's wrong and we're not receiving revelation. I can, I can think of a couple of handfuls of situations in my life where I felt an overwhelming sense of, of the fire of the Holy Ghost in my heart, but those are pretty limited and those are experiences that are pretty sacred that I that I don't share widely, most of the time, 99.9% of the time, revelation for me is gentle feelings of peace, of long-suffering, of patience, of kindness, of love that verifies to me this is, this is what needs to happen. Now, I'm not in the process of translating scripture at that time, so it's not it doesn't have to be this pinnacle of revelation like maybe it, maybe it is in this context for Joseph and Oliver, but I think sometimes you and I might struggle with our expectation level of telling God that our revelation has to be above a certain threshold of feeling and enlightenment or it doesn't count as revelation. If instead we be still and know that he is God and trust that as we move forward doing the best that we can with our thoughts and our feelings, with all of their attached limitations, then we're opening the door for God to continue to teach us more and more and more of his language of revelation, and we become more fluent in it, and we trust it more. We stop less and say, wait, should I really do that? And we act more in faith, more fluently in this communication process with God. Let's look again at verse 11. Remember, back in a few sections ago, God had said, fear not, fear not, fear not. And then what happened? Oliver actually had fear, and that was partly why he didn't accomplish what he had hoped for. How many of us experience fear in our lives? Frankly, all of us. It's a very human thing. What God is saying is, act, choose, move forward. When we have fear, we actually stop ourselves from acting, and God is telling us, have faith, have courage, keep the commandments. Don't wait to be commanded in all things. You have the commandments, move forward in faith, and it says here in verse 11, behold, it was expedient when you commenced, 
but you feared, and the time is past, and it is not expedient now. So if you do have a righteous desire, don't be afraid of declaring that, not necessarily publicly, but being clear to yourself of what you desire and seeking and searching. And God will actually reveal your life to you as you act. If you wait for revelation in all things before you act, that just actually does not sound like a very fun life. We fought a war in heaven to have agency to act. And the purpose of revelation is to provide us a bit of guardrails. If God had to reveal every last thing that you are supposed to do with your life, that actually would destroy your agency. So fear not, love God, he is with you, and he will guide you. Now, to finish, there, there may be some either in your, in your family or in your circle of influence, or maybe you who have experienced this, where you feel like you're getting weary, you're tired of trying to move forward on the covenant path or live the gospel of Jesus Christ, keep the commandments, do all the things that are, that are expected of you as a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And part of the struggle might be because you feel like God isn't speaking to you. You're not receiving revelation and you don't know how much longer you can hold on. Notice what he says here, verse 13, do this thing which I have commanded you and you shall prosper. Be faithful and yield to no temptation. Brothers and sisters, if you feel like you're not getting revelation, can I just recommend that you spend less time looking on the internet for answers to life's biggest questions and the decisions that you're making and spend more time immersed in the scriptures, in, in heartfelt prayer, in the words of living prophets, looking for guidance and direction and answers, uh, and don't assume that God is going to send angels or give you big burning feelings in your, in your heart in order for it to be true, but pay attention to the simple thoughts, to the simple feelings, the urges that come over time. For some they come early, for some they come late, but you'll notice the scriptures are filled with examples of people who go to God with questions and they don't instantaneously get an answer. There's usually a trial of faith. Sometimes there's an instant answer, but usually there's a trial of faith. Anybody can be good standing on a mountain peak of revelation. The true test of my discipleship comes not when I receive these big, clear, direct answers to questions and prayers, but more when I'm in the valleys, in the dark troughs filled with shadows and darkness trying to figure out how to move forward in faith. That's where my discipleship is stretched. That's where I grow the most. It's not up on the mountain peaks. It's in the struggles of, of making ends meet, both physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially. It's the struggles of life. It's why we're here, to move forward in faith. Look at verse 14, stand fast in the work wherewith I have called you. I think that invitation is just as strong for you and me today as it was for Oliver and Joseph.
and Emma in their setting back there in that little home in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Brothers and sisters, God lives. He is in his heavens and he is watching over us. He knows what you're going through and he could take it away, but he's not for most of us and there's a good reason for that because there's growth to come from us working with him through those struggles and those trials of mortality. Know that you're loved and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.